Good evening, everyone. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to First Wednesday. It's really good for you to, for, for you to be here. It's important for you to be here. Uh, no, thank you for being here. Um, we, we have a good night planned for us. First Wednesdays are the nights that we talk about important issues related to faith and culture. We do them on the first Wednesday of each month, and we usually take an important cultural topic and we look at it through the lens of the gospel story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we don't always go through each of those categories, but we look at it through the lens of the gospel. Um, in the past, we've talked about things like technology, food, black history, international issues, vocation, and a number of other things. And tonight, the, the topic is survival of the unfittest, walking with the vulnerable. Now, before I get into that and before I explain what we're going to talk about tonight, um, I have an announcement or two. The first announcement is that we have a class coming up, a class on faith and science. If you have questions about how faith and science work together and you've heard a lot of things in the news but you want questions answered, you want good books, good resources, we're going to be holding a class starting next Wednesday here in this room um, and it will go th for three Wednesdays in April. If you're interested in that class, you can sign up online or we've put sign-up sheets on your table. So go ahead and sign up there and then we'll pick it up at the end of the night. So that's going to be a really good class and I hope you um, att attend that. Um, the other thing I would encourage is on your way out, take a look at some of the art as it reflects the theme of the night. Um, and the theme of tonight, as I mentioned before, is survival of the unfittest, walking with the vulnerable. Now you may, that phrase, survival of the unfittest, may sound familiar because it's, the, it's a play on the words with the the phrase survival of the fittest, this idea that a lot of social Darwinists have thrown around um, that have, has resulted in some very painful things to the most vulnerable. So tonight we're going to get a little bit of science, a little bit of justice issues. We're going to kind of mix them up together and see what comes out. So what do we mean by survival of the unfittest and walking with the vulnerable. Well, there are many people in the world who are vulnerable, who are susceptible to harm and injustice, and the gospel calls us to move towards the places of pain. There's a mentality out there that's shaping a lot of us, somewhat uh, might call it naturalism or social Darwinism, that ends up having a laissez-faire attitude toward the poor, and we want to counter that tonight. This first Wednesday will focus on contrasting the beauty of the gospel with the dark story of social Darwinism, but we're also going to explore some tangible ways that you can think about and tangibly walk with the most vulnerable in society. Now, what do I mean by the most vulnerable? The definition that we're going to work from tonight, unless one of the speakers decides to change it, and I'm okay with that, is... Um, the most vulnerable are those who are most susceptible to harm and injustice and need a greater degree of help from others in order to flourish. Now, who does that include? Well, before we get into some of the specific people uh, in society that we're going to be talking about tonight, we must start with the understanding that it's actually all of us. 
that we are all tremendously vulnerable, yet we live under an illusion of safety many times. But even now, in your healthiest state of life, you might, you might be a little bit less vulnerable now. You might have more power in the world now. But we come into this world absolutely vulnerable and in need of others as babies. And toward the end of our life, we need people as well. We, will, we, will, we are temporarily abled. And eventually, we will need the help of others. So it includes all of us. But some of the people that we're specifically talking about tonight are people who are homeless, who are refugees, who are elderly, people with disabilities, people who are sick, um, the unborn, children in foster care, and basically the people in this world that are most susceptible to harm and injustice that we need to walk with. So that's what we're going to focus on tonight. We care about the common good here, and we throw the word common good around quite a bit, but Andy Crouch has the best definition of the common good that I've ever heard. He says that the common good is the flourishing of the most vulnerable. That when the most vulner vulnerable flourish, we all flourish as well. So let me give you the schedule for tonight. We're going to have two talks, one from Dr. John West on the challenge of social Darwinism, uh, another one from me on hospitality and the most vulnerable. We'll have some poetry, and then we'll have a panel consisting of Ricardo Stewart, who's the lead pastor of Redemption Tempe, Danae Pierre, who's the executive director of Foster Care Initiatives, uh, Dr. John West, the vice president of the Discovery Institute, Will Vakurovich, the director of social services at the House of Refuge, and me, unfortunately. Um, so that'll be our panel, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. But before we talk, I want to give you a question to talk about amongst yourselves, to talk about around your table. And the question is this, outside of your family, outside of your family members, who has been the most helpful to you in times of need? Who specifically, name somebody who has been helpful to you in a time of need. So go ahead and discuss that, and I'll come up in just a moment and introduce Dr. West. Father, we're thankful for your tremendous love toward us, uh, how you've created us, how you've known us, um, and the beauty of your story. Help us to live faithfully within it tonight and not be captive by some of the other stories in the world. We pray that tonight would be, uh, would sharpen our minds, would turn our hearts with affection towards you and towards others, and that you would give us something tangible for our hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me go ahead and introduce our speaker for tonight, our main speaker for tonight, uh, Dr. John G. West, emphasis on the G. Um, he's, uh, he's the vice president and senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. He's the associate director of the Institute's Center for Science and Culture, and his current research examines the impact of science and scientism on public policy and culture. Um, his other areas of expertise include constitutional law, American government and institutions, and religion and po politics. Previously, he was an associate professor of political sci science at Seattle Pacific University, where he chaired the Department of Political Science and Geography. Um, he has taught political science and history courses at California State University, um, San Bernardino, and Azusa Pacific, Pacific University. He's written 12 books. His most recent is The Magician's Twin, C.S. Lewis on Science, Scientism, and Society. 
and the one that we're going to be really promoting tonight and that we're selling tonight in the back is Darwin Day in America, where he has some pretty important chapters that address the things that we're talking about tonight. So you'll want to go ahead and pick that book up. But for now, would you go ahead and give Dr. West a hand as he comes forward? Okay, I guess we'll, we'll do this one. This, I think, will work. It's a great, actually, privilege to be here tonight, and uh, in the past day, have really enjoyed getting to know uh, Pastor Jim and actually Pastor Ricardo. <clears throat> tonight, actually, is a very poignant night for me for another reason. Nine years ago uh, tonight, my 85-year-old mother was languishing in uh, a nursing home because she had broken her hip and she was suffering from dementia, and this actually is the night that God took her. And in fact, uh, she taught me something about caring for the vulnerable uh, those two months after she had broken her hip, where we had to try to provide round-the-clock care between our family members and, and others so she was never left alone, even though she had to be in a facility. And I actually write in my book not about that, but uh, about how we do treat our elderly in, in nursing homes and how scientific materialism, not just Darwinism, has actually impacted some of how we demean people. I wasn't actually going to speak about this, but I got thought, I was thinking about it earlier today, and I do think we have a lot of situations where we're called to care for the poor and vulnerable, and I think a Christian view, a Christian worldview, really does make a difference but it's challenging because in our culture, uh, we have a lot of claims about human beings that are not true and end up taking us down paths that are not necessarily helpful to either human flourishing or being loving. Well, with that, let me, let me just get started more formally. You know, Christians have traditionally believed that all human beings are created in the image of God and that they're very for valuable and have intrinsic worth. Grounded in the Bible, this conception of human nature and the human person has inspired Christians throughout the ages to work for social justice, defend the vulnerable. But in our efforts to help defend uh, the vulnerable and promote human flourishing, Christians often have had to overcome a debased view of the human person that was dominant in their culture. In the Roman world, the sick and infirm often were not considered valuable at all, and they were frequently left to die, including babies. Even the most thoughtful Roman thinkers advocated infanticide. For example, Roman philosopher Seneca proclaimed, we drown children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. And it could multiply the quotes from other Roman thinkers who said similar things. Cicero, these great thinkers whom I respect in the Western tradition, had a very different view than the Christian view of the human person. Early Christians felt compelled to challenge the Roman culture's debased view of human life, which led to efforts to end infanticide and eventually to the development of things like hospitals, which we take for granted today, but were in fact first started in conjunction with Christian cathedrals and monasteries. Fascinating story that most Christians, let alone most uh, people who are non-Christians, don't know about. Similarly, in the 19th century, Christian missionaries were instrumental working for the end of the practice of sati in India. Sati is the burning to death of the widow of a man who dies. 
And the British Empire, which was interested in India for economic reasons, was not interested in ending the practice. It was missionaries like William Carey who really pressed the case. Uh, if anything, the British uh, Empire, they had the practice of you know, Star Wars, you're supposed to, uh, not Star Wars, Star Trek, if you don't interfere with the local you know, customs or things. And that there's you know, non-interference, but uh, sometimes non-interference is not the best way to promote human flourishing. In America, meanwhile, many pastors and ordinary Christians were involved during the past century, challenging their culture as well as many of their fellow Christians who thought some races were inferior to others. In each of these examples, Christians had to challenge their culture's view of the human person in order to defend the vulnerable and promote human flourishing. I think if Christians want to really promote human flourishing today, we first need to think about how our culture's view of the human person may have become debased in various ways and may in fact need to be challenged. Now, I think there are many different influences that shape our view of human beings. But I do think that one of the most significant has been modern science in the form of Darwinian biology. And so that's what I'm going to focus on in my brief time with you tonight. Darwin's theory isn't just an academic exercise. It has real-world implications for how we understand our world and each other. This can be seen actually quite tragically in really the personal journey of Charles Darwin himself. The year was 1831. Darwin was 22 years old recently graduated from college. He wanted to explore the ecosystems of the world, so he joined the expedition of the HMS Beagle in his voyage to South America and beyond. Two months later, he was walking in the midst of a Brazilian rainforest, confronted by the beauty of it. He experienced an overwhelming sense of awe. Surely, he thought, man was more than a mere animal, and there was some greater purpose behind nature than mere physical survival. Darwin's sense of awe about nature and about human beings, unfortunately, did not last. Fast forward to the end of his life, the ending chapter, the last decade, as he wrote his autobiography. Reflecting on his earlier sense of awe in the rainforest, there, <laughs> Darwin wrote that now not even the grandest scenes in nature would inspire such a view. Why? Well, he explained that the evidence of exquisite design and purpose he once saw in things like that rainforest now didn't move him because he had discovered his law of natural selection, or what Herbert Spencer called survival of the fittest. Uh, Darwin himself actually ended up liking the term better than natural selection, or at least he said that in later chapters, later versions, uh, revisions of on the origin of species. In any way, Ideas do have consequences, and Darwin's theory has had and continues to have huge consequences for how we view and how we treat our fellow human beings. To fully grasp that impact, though, I think we need to understand the two main prongs of the theory. Oh. First, Darwin proposed that all creatures, including humans, had descended with modifications from an one original, simple, primordial organism. Second, Darwin proposed that human beings and the rest of nature were produced by a process of natural selection or survival of the fittest acting on random variations in nature. This process of natural selection was supposed to be blind and unguided. That's the key thing. According to Darwin, it was supposed to be a substitute 
for intelligent design or God. Uh, to Darwin and many others, the first prong of his theory, common descent, suggested that there was no fundamental difference between human beings and the rest of nature. In the words of Darwinian philosopher Peter Singer at Princeton, Darwin showed we are simply animals. Humans had imagined we were a separate part of creation, that there was some magical line between us and them. Darwin's theory undermined the foundations of that entire Western way of thinking about the place of our species in the universe. Now, the second prong of Darwin's theory, meanwhile, suggested that we were not the intentional and loving creation of a creator, but the unintentional product of a blind and purposeless process. In the words of the late Harvard paleontologist, George Gaylord Simpson, if we can get there, <clears throat> man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. And not only was that Darwinian process blind, it was also ruthless. Human beings, according to Darwin, gained their highest capacities, not because those capacities were planned by a beneficent creator, but because natural selection ruthlessly killed off those who didn't measure up. I don't think it can be emphasized enough that Darwin enshrined death and the struggle for existence as the great engine of progress in human society. As he wrote, actually, in his book on the origin of species, thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, directly follows. And, of course, we're one of the higher animals. We're the products, not of a loving creator who willed us into existence lovingly, but from the war of nature, from famine, death. This Darwinian view has impacted Western culture's understanding of the human person in at least four ways. First is actually the erosion of the sanctity and dignity and value of human life. We don't have time to explore in depth all of the impacts on the sanctity of life. My book, Darwin Day, goes into this topic of great detail. But I'd like to mention one historical example and then discuss the way in which Darwinian thinking encourages the devaluation of human life today. The historical example is scientific racism. Now, Charles Darwin was not the first racist. And he was better than many racists in that he opposed slavery. But Darwin nevertheless helped fuel a virulent form of racism by proposing natural selection as a scientific explanation for why we should expect significant differences in the mental faculties of what he called men of distinct races. The idea is natural selection acts differently on different populations, and so you should expect differences, significant differences. Moreover, Darwin contended that the break in evolutionary history, in his view, between apes and humans came, and these are his words, between the Negro or Australian Aborigine and the gorilla. This was an argument he made in his book, The Descent of Man. Basically, he was arguing that blacks, in his view, were the closest human beings to apes. Darwin's view inspired a whole generation of scientists, like Ernst Haeckel in Germany, one of his correspondents, who tried to use evolution to classify races according to their presumed evolutionary history and where they were on the evolutionary tree and, and which races were closer to the origins of humanity in the higher apes and which weren't. Uh, this kind of really horrific Darwinian racism had really significant uh, and horrific consequences, especially in 
German colonialism in Africa, which I'm going to give you a little video clip on in just a moment. But this is Ernst Haeckel's, one of his famous diagrams. It's a diagram that purports to show the higher and lower races. You'll note at the very top is sort of the prototypical Teutonic uh, Nordic male. At the very bottom are ape-like creatures. Second from the bottom, you may note, uh, is a creature with a very long nose, which is a caricature of, that people do of Jews. And this is in the 1800s. This is well before Hitler. Um, so, you know, showing that Jews have throwbacks to the very, you know, lowest of, of uh, the apes. But the really interesting thing to note, if you note on the second line and uh, the third line, that uh, the second line, so it's one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, that's supposed to be the lowest human, and then on the fourth line is the highest ape. And the takeaway point from this graph that Ernst Haeckel, one of the leading Darwinian scientists in Germany for decades at the end of the 19th century, his takeaway of his explanation for why this was important is that you note that the gap between the highest human and the lowest human is much more dramatic than the gap between the lowest human and the highest ape. And that was Ernst Haeckel's takeaway point. It wasn't just Ernst Haeckel. This was, his works were translated into English, multiple editions, so many, many people in America and Britain and elsewhere read his works. And as I said, this kind of Darwinian, specifically Darwinian racism, had horrific real-world impact. And I just want to give you one example, because most people don't know about this example. Between 1904 and 1908, the German military attempted to eradicate the Herero people in southwest Africa in what some scholars consider the first genocide of the 20th century. On October the 2nd, 1904, General Lothar von Trotha issued what became known as his extermination order, declaring that the Hereros either had to leave German southwest Africa or face extinction. Herero men would be executed and Herero women and children would be driven into the desert where they would die of starvation or dehydration. Von Trotha justified his extermination campaign by an explicit appeal to social Darwinism, telling one newspaper that human feelings of philanthropy could not override the law of Darwin's The Struggle of the Fittest. When Von Trotha's extermination campaign provoked a backlash in Germany, a new plan was developed to move the remaining Hereros to concentration camps, where many more would ultimately die from malnutrition, disease, and exhaustion. In these death camps, the Hereros were subjected to medical experiments by German doctors, and their skulls were collected for shipment back to Germany to be studied by experts in racial science. By 1908, it's estimated that more than 80% of the Herero people had been eliminated from German Southwest Africa. Back in Europe, meanwhile, German military leaders prepared for the next conflict on their continent. Okay. There's actually a whole uh, documentary about the impact of Darwinian theory on social Darwinism in Germany leading up 
II and through World War I, and this is part of it. It's called The Biology of the Second Reich. You can find it actually on the internet if you're interested. I was involved in, in creating it along with a historian named Richard Weichart. Uh, but today, Darwinian ideology is still employed to devalue human life, and let me just give you one example among many. In the area of abortion, scientists and activists over the past several decades, and in my book I document this uh, in much greater detail, have appealed to Darwinian theory to justify the claim that babies in the womb aren't fully human, invoking an idea known as embryonic recapitulation, these proponents of abortion argue that human infants replay the history of evolution as they develop in the womb. They go through the fish stage, the lower mammal stage, and more before finally reaching a state of being a human being. Actually, someone who popularized this, this goes back to Ernst Haeckel again, who was previously mentioned, and this is another one of his uh, diagrams that, until just a few years ago, were actually still used in most American biology textbooks, even though it was known for decades that the science of this is in fact not true. The idea there is the beginning stage is supposed to be the beginning of uh, vertebrate embryos and then by, uh, they're supposed to be almost indistinguishable, which in fact is factually not true. Uh, and then only near the very end do you actually get differences. And so, uh, you know, that was the point of that. Embryonic recapitulation is junk science and has been discredited among evolutionary biologists for decades. But Interestingly, that has not stopped this effort from being invoked, or, or this idea from being invoked repeatedly as a justification for abortion by people who should have known better. For example, this man was a National Academy of Sciences geneticist at the University of Michigan, James Neal, who testified before the United States Congress, I tell his story in my book, in the 1980s, basically arguing for abortion based on uh, recapitulation uh, in the womb. More recently, you have the late journalist Christopher Hitchin, who's no longer with us, who wrote a book, Why God is Not Great, who makes the same argument for abortion in that book. Uh, so this is just to show you the broad sweep of the different sorts of people who have made this argument. The same Darwinian devaluation of human life can be found today among a growing number of activists in our society who are explicitly anti-human and actually think that humans are a parasite on the earth. And uh, this is becoming a lot more prominent, especially on the West Coast. Today, Darwinian ideas influence the views of many of the most strident anti-human activists. In September 2010, longtime environmental activist James Lee took hostages at the headquarters of the Discovery Channel cable network. Lee demanded that the Discovery Channel change its programming to highlight what he regarded as the planet's biggest enemy, humans. In his list of demands, Lee called on the Discovery Channel to talk about evolution. Talk about Malthus and Darwin until it sinks into the stupid people's brains. Sir David Attenborough is one of the world's most respected wildlife filmmakers. In a 2013 interview, he denounced humans as a plague on the earth. According to Attenborough, in the past, natural selection kept humans in check by killing them off. But modern society undermines natural selection by saving the sick and finding ways to feed more and more people. 
Other activists today invoke Darwinian ideas in order to deny that humans have special value. Christopher Maines was an early leader in the influential environmental group Earth First. In his book Green Rage, he argues that evolution means there is no basis for seeing humans as more advanced or developed than any other species. According to Maines, human beings are not the goal of evolution because evolution has no goal. In his words, evolution simply unfolds life form after life form and Darwin invited humanity to face the fact that the observation of nature has revealed not one scrap of evidence that humankind is superior or special or even particularly more interesting than, say, lichen. The use of Darwin's theory to debunk human dignity spans the ideological spectrum. Princeton University bioethicist Peter Singer is author of the book A Darwinian Left. Singer claims that the life of a newborn baby is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. And where does Peter Singer get this from? He's told us. In an interview, Peter Singer made uh, very clear that his view was going back to Darwin. He said, Darwin really showed us that human beings aren't special. We're not sort of separate from the rest of nature. We're not unique. Uh, and so that we shouldn't be treated that way. And so this idea that there's something special or unique about human beings, and that human beings deserve special treatment, uh, really is undermined by Darwin in Peter Singer's view. The same dismissal of human uniqueness can be found among some on the right. John Derbyshire was a longtime writer for the conservative journal National Review. In 2012, he was dismissed after writing an article for another publication, arguing that blacks are more antisocial and less intelligent than whites. Derbyshire believes that racial differences are the products of evolution. He also believes that Darwinian theory refutes the claim of traditional Western monotheism that human beings are exceptional. In his words, the broad outlook on human nature implied by Darwinian ideas contradicts the notion of human exceptionalism. To modern biologists informed by Darwin, we are merely another branch on nature's tree. Okay, there are three more impacts that I want to speak about and we'll do those more briefly than the first one. The second one is the erosion of morality. In his book, The Descent of Man, Darwin depicted morality not as something permanent or transcendent, but simply as those behaviors and beliefs favored by natural selection because they promoted physical survival under a given set of conditions. In the Darwinian view of ethics, morality radically changes over time based on changing conditions for physical survival. If parental love promotes survival, then that becomes moral. But if selective infanticide promotes survival better, then that becomes moral. Darwin's reductionistic account of the development of morality leaves little room for preferring uh, one society's morality over another, uh, or one moral code over another. Or according to Darwin's framework, every behavior that occurs regularly in at least some subpopulation is normal, almost by definition. Moral and immoral behaviors develop for the same reason, to promote biological survival. Now, for the most part, Darwin was a proper 19th century Victorian, and so he didn't press sort of this relativistic analysis to its logical conclusion, but certainly many of his followers inspired by him have. And perhaps nowhere has this Darwinian view of ethics had more severe impact than in family life and human sexuality. 
It's not an accident that the thinker most responsible for the breakdown of sexual ethics in our culture was a Harvard-trained evolutionary zoologist. His name was Alfred Kinsey. Adopting a thoroughly Darwinian approach to sexual morality, Kinsey argued that any sexual practice that could be found somewhere among mammals could be regarded in his view, and this was his term, normal mammalian behavior, and therefore it should be regarded as okay. Today, many evolutionary psychologists have gone beyond mere sexual relativism and are affirmatively arguing against monogamy. They claim that we were bred by Darwinian evolution to have multiple sex partners, which means that we were programmed for promiscuity and infidelity. In their view, the very idea of a faithful monogamous marriage contradicts our biology and therefore must be abandoned. One of the most prominent proponents of this view is an evolutionary psychologist named Christopher Ryan, uh, who co-authored a book called Sex at Dawn, which was a New York Times bestseller in 2012. According to Ryan, marriage in the West isn't doing very well. Why? Because it's in direct confrontation with the evolved reality of our species. He thinks that marriage needs to be redefined to allow multiple partners throughout the marriage. And that, in his view, is what will save marriage as an institution. This undermining of, of monogamous marriage in the name of science, I think, has special relevance to helping the poor and disenfranchised. Now, poverty has many, many causes, but in our society, long-term intergenerational poverty is often closely connected with family breakdown. And, and you know, the, the social science on this is really unequivocal. And if Christians want to create effective ministries to reduce long-term intergenerational poverty, they're going to have to find ways to address the challenge of the Darwinian view of sexuality, because it is cutting in a completely different direction. Now, a third impact of Darwin's theory on our view of human life relates to personal responsibility. Darwin was one of those who helped popularize the idea that all human behaviors and choices are the products of our heredity and environment. Of course, heredity and environment do influence how we act and how we think. But if there are a complete account of why we do what we do, what happens to personal accountability? Darwin himself understood the implications of this materialistic account of human beings, writing in one of his notebooks that in his deterministic view, free will is a delusion. Many modern Darwinian thinkers who are consistent hold the same view. In the words of a Cornell University professor, William Provine, professor of the history of biology at Cornell, naturalistic evolution has clear consequences that Charles Darwin understood perfectly, including the idea that human free will is non-existent. Free will is a disastrous and mean social myth. Now this claim that all our choices are compelled by material forces that we have no say over has had a tremendous impact on psychology, counseling, criminal justice. I talk about some of that in my book. Someone who works actually in prison ministry told me just recently about how they had brought in a professional counselor to talk with prisoners. But it was very discouraging to them because this counselor basically told the convicts who had actually converted to Christianity and were actually changing their lives with God's help but actually told the convicts that they weren't responsible for any of their choices. They were just programmed to do what they did. I think th this claim that we're not responsible for our actions flatly contradicts not only common sense, but also the biblical view of the human person. Yes, the Bible teaches that we're sinful, but it also emphasizes the importance of our choices and urges us to choose wisely. As a practical matter, I write about this in my book, rehabilitation programs that emphasize the importance of people taking responsibility for their own choices tend to 
produce more changed individuals. So I think Christians who minister to those struggling with various challenges and behaviors need to be willing to challenge this cultural mindset that we aren't responsible. Finally, a final impact of Darwin's theory has been the erosion of the idea that humans have a spiritual purpose. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, humans have eternal souls. Their lives serve a higher purpose because they were intentionally created by a loving God. But if the Darwinian uh, theory is true and it really proves that life is the product of a blind and unguided process, then God is either impotent or more likely non-existent. And if God doesn't exist, there's no higher spiritual purpose to human life. Indeed, there is no likelihood that human beings have eternal souls. So it should be no you know, surprise that according to a survey by researchers at Cornell University, of leading scientists just in the field of evolution, given the emphasis in Darwinian theory on unguided processes, 87% deny the existence of God and 88% disbelieve in life after death. This claim that science somehow disproves the existence of God or the reality of the spiritual aspect of human life has tremendous consequences. Uh, just a couple of years ago, National Public Radio ran a very poignant story on why many young people are struggling with and abandoning faith in God. Among others, they interviewed one 20-something who said, I don't believe, but I really want to. But looking right now at the facts, not just my subjective feelings of what I want, but the facts, evolution and science, they're saying, no, there is none. I say even those who do not lose their belief in God because of Darwinian theory may give up a belief in an active and all-powerful God. Thus, it's increasingly popular among some Christians to claim that because evolution is unguided, God himself doesn't and can't guide it or even know how it's going to turn out. So we have former Vatican astronomer George Coyne arguing that God, not even God could know with certainty that human life would come to be. Because if evolution is an unguided process, even God couldn't know how it would turn out. Or Ken Miller at Brown University, uh, author of a book called Finding Darwin's God, which is used in many Christian colleges, who argues that mankind's appearance on this planet was not preordained, that we are here as an afterthought, a minor detail, a happenstance in a history that might just as well have left us out. Now, I'd say the message of uh, secular Darwinists is that science shows that the spiritual side of life is a myth. You can believe God if you want to, but it's tantamount to a fairy story. Only matter really matters. Unfortunately, many Christians seem to act as if the secular Darwinists are right. You might even say that many Christians operate as practical materialists. They believe in God, but sometimes they act as if he doesn't exist. I recall, in fact, inviting a pastor who ran a homeless ministry in Seattle to speak to one of my college classes. In my former life, I was a college professor for many years. So the question came up in the class, whether his ministry tried to address the spiritual needs of the homeless they helped in any way, say by offering a Bible study to people who wanted it, or some way to actually interact with their spiritual needs. And it turned out that they didn't. Indeed, it became apparent to the students in the class that this Christian ministry wasn't much different from a completely secular ministry. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Simply supplying shelter to someone who needs it is a Christian act. I fully believe that. But... If we actually think that God exists, and to be fulfilled is to have a relationship with him, 
limiting your ministry solely to a person's material needs is heartbreaking. If Christians want to change the world, they aren't going to do it by being practical materialists or by unthinkingly adopting our culture's prevailing worldview. The Christians in the past who changed our world, who started hospitals, who ended infanticide, who secured civil rights, did so by being astoundingly countercultural. And so I think Christians today, we need to be willing to be countercultural. We need to ask ourselves how our guiding assumptions are being shaped by ideas that may not, in fact, be consistent with our biblical beliefs. We also need to do our homework so we can respond thoughtfully when we're confronted with various wrong-headed claims made about human beings in the name of science, especially some coming from Darwinian biology, that humans aren't special or that we aren't the product of or that we're the product of blind and purposeless processes. Fortunately, there are lots of good resources to do that. I will give uh, a plug here for the Discovery Institute information table where you can fill out a card tonight. And you actually, uh, if you do that, you'll get a free DVD, your choice, including one called Privileged Species or one called The Toughest Test. Privileged Species actually gives and talks about some of the scientific evidence that we are unique and that the universe was really planned for creatures like uh, us. Uh, if you sign up for our free email newsletter, uh, you can get this today, so I hope you will. Uh, and I hope afterwards, which I'll be here for a while, that you'll interact uh, even after the question period. I'd say right now there is absolutely no reason for Christians to uncritically adopt a Darwinian account of human nature, especially when increasing numbers of serious scientists and thinkers are starting to question orthodox Darwinian theory. For example, Nobel Prize winning physicist Robert Laughlin at Stanford frankly states, evolution by natural selection has lately come to function more as an anti-theory called upon to cover up embarrassing experimental shortcomings and legitimize findings that are at best questionable and at worst not even wrong. Robert Laughlin, as far as I know, is not a Christian, he's, or at least he very closely guards what his particular religious beliefs are. He's certainly not a public proponent of intelligent design, uh, but this is rather astounding. Certainly doesn't mesh with lots of things you may read in the news media. Or just one other example, prominent atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel has published a book with Oxford University Press titled Mind and Cosmos, and get the subtitle, while the, why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. Nagel is still an atheist, but after examining the evidence, he has become completely unpersuaded of Darwinian explanations for mind, morality, and life itself. Indeed, he derides the Darwinian worldview as what he says, it's a heroic triumph of ideological theory over common sense. He even says, and this is a direct quote again, I would be willing to bet that the present right-thinking consensus will come to seem laughable in a generation or two. In sum, he concludes that the Darwinian worldview is ripe for displacement. Given this vigorous questioning of Darwinian theory, even by many in the secular community, I think Christians shouldn't be reticent to challenge Darwinian thinking when it diverges from what they know is true about the nature of humans in particular. Thank you.
now before I step down, I have a question for you to discuss for the next few minutes before we go into the next uh, segment tonight. So it's not going to be up there, so you need to listen carefully. Is there some situation in your life, is there some situation in your life, either now or in the past, where you have been called to care for someone who the world does not value? Okay? Is there some situation in your life, either now or in the past, where you have been called, and maybe have, actually, to care for someone who the world does not value. So talk away for the next few minutes, and then we'll head on to the next part. Uh, my name is Spencer Aubrey. Um, I'm a member of this church, and uh, this poem is called Talk to Me. Talk to me. Talk to me. The trills and lyrical rhythms of each verbal ascent draw me closer to a roller coaster of emotional descent. Tears fall further and further, faster and faster with each passing breath. Famished, my lips draw for the taste of one more saline waterfall, only left unquenched in the dryness of my soul. Breaks and rolling waves only cease at the mention of my hope. Can anyone soothe the rise and fall of midnight tides as they caress the illuminated beaches of my consciousness? Crickets, etched symphonies on the parchment upon the latter wind, easing forth and back across the barren air. Shadows, sulking silhouettes, no longer press the crimson trail of broken hearts, rather, like a fading star, engulf all surrounding features of my face and frame into a trite blackness, lacking no depth. I wish you had seen me before I faded, ever so quickly into the landscape of the night. I wish you see me as I am and not this dark exterior. I wish you see me as I was, as I am. I wish you see me as I was, as I am. I wish you see me as I was, as I am. And let not the darkness jade your already retreating gaze. I was not always this way, this cold. Lifeless, I gripped with hollow digits a brief air of compassion you extended my way, only to watch it slip through the U-shaped breaks. Hands aged in fields of white, reluctantly planting as each tick of the latter hand tells of a time when I was not hiding like this, a longing to be known, oh, to be known, to be appreciated. Just talk to me so that I may feel again. Talk to me so that I may heal again. And talk to me. Please just listen.
So tonight as we're talking about what it means to walk with the vulnerable, um, we have to ask the question of what are our deepest needs? What are the deepest needs of all of humanity and of the vulnerable? And I think that Spencer's poem hit at the heart of our deepest needs. It's to know and to be known. At the end of the day, after the programs, after the money, after the help, after the shelter, all very important things, but we are relational people who need to be known and need to know others and be in relationship. Whether it's the person who has found themselves without a physical home or a refugee who has moved to America or someone with developmental uh, delays and disabilities who wants to connect with people but struggles to know how, the deep longing of the heart is to know and to be known. And as we walk with the vulnerable, we need to keep this in mind. This is what Stephen Garber says. He says, these are the truest truths of the universe. We do not flourish as human beings when no, one, uh, when no one knows us and we know no one. We do not flourish as human beings when we belong to no place and no place cares about us. When we have no sense of relationship to people or place, we have no sense of responsibility to people or to place. And at the end of the day, longing to be known and to know others is at the core of the, of the human heart and what we need most. This is why Jesus in his high priestly prayer prayed in John 17, 3, that th he said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And we're called to care about the whole person but the whole person needs to be in relationship to others. And that right there is the uniqueness of the gospel and the uniqueness of the good news that we have for all of the vulnerable, including us. That God has made himself known to us in very profound ways. God made himself known to us and reconciled us into a community where we can know each other. And how has he done that? How does Jesus relate to the vulnerable and how does he relate to us? Well, there are many ways, but there is one I just want to focus on. Let me talk about some of the ways and then just hone in on one. He relates to us through creation in that he created every hair on our arm and our eyes and shapes every moment of our life. He has created us and has created each of the vulnerable and cares for them including us, the vulnerable. He knows us through healing in that Jesus put his hands on people that others wouldn't, and he healed them. And one day there will be a day when he heals all of our wounds. He knows us through suffering, that he suffered for us and died for us so that we would be reconciled to God and that we would know God. But one of the most unique things that often gets overlooked is that he knows us through his presence. In the incarnation, how Jesus walked with the vulnerable is not from a distance, not from a policy, but, but literally walking with them as the starting place. And this leads us to a word that I want you to put in your pocket, a word to treasure, to keep with you, to use in your vocabulary. That's a theologically rich word. You probably have overlooked it many times. It's this word, with with. 
Emmanuel, what, what Jesus was called as Emmanuel, God with us. He comes near to us through suffering and incarnation. He took on flesh and literally walked among the most vulnerable. His hands were placed on those with contagious disease. He wasn't afraid to be seen with the sexually shamed. He reclined with the homeless, and he carried the kingdom through the weak and undeveloped arms of children. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus didn't just come near, but he actually entered into the experience of the most vulnerable, becoming vulnerable himself so that he could walk with them and relate to them in all of their pain. You see, Jesus can relate to those who experience homelessness as the one who owns and created the entire world. He chose to live on the generosity and hospitality of others with no place to lay his head. Jesus can relate to children and even the unborn who face violence and suffering, that the very wombs that are often violated through things like abortion, Jesus came to inhabit himself. He didn't come as an adult. He came through the womb. And as a young child, an edict was put out to kill all of the firstborns in Jesus' neighborhood because Herod, a king, wanted to take him out. And even before he was able to write his first sentences. Jesus was running from his life, able to relate to every child who has to face fear and violence at a young age. Jesus can relate to the refugee. As, as, he, as him and his family were fleeing from Herod, they had to flee to Egypt. And you and I, we probably don't know what it's like to... Uh, to be a Somali child or a Syrian child who has to run from the village where all your memories were formed, holding on to the pant leg of your parents into a place that's completely foreign to you. But Jesus knows as he ran to Egypt, holding on to Mary's hand as a refugee. Jesus can relate to the isolation and fear of the elderly. And even though he didn't, he died at a, at a young age, he knows what it's like to be alone and to be facing the imminent reality of death as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying alone without his friends, knowing what was coming the next day. And Jesus can relate to the physical pain of those who suffer uh, injury and disease. You see, he reaches out to those with arthritis, with hands that have been pierced with nails. He walked among the paralyzed with feet that were immobilized on a wooden beam on the cross. And with lungs filled with blood, he preached peace to those with stage 5 lung cancer. The uniqueness of Jesus is not just that he suffers for us, although that is precious and very important, but he also suffers with us. He comes with us. He comes near. It's that word with. And because of that, because that is the nature of our God, I want to give you one more word to put in your pocket. You got two pockets. Put with in one. This next word I want you to put in the other. An important word. The word that defines the starting place from which we respond. There are many, many important things that we need to do. We need to be involved in policy. We need to provide food. We need to provide tangible needs and awareness and all that. But this one other word, the word hospitality, is our starting place of literally being with someone. Now, hospitality, how am I defining that? That is welcoming the other to the table. 
literally sharing meals and sharing life with others. And when you think of hospitality, you probably think of Martha Stewart and the hotel industry and things like that, but that is not the biblical concept of hospitality. It's making space in your life, sharing meals with the other, and that's what I'm calling you to do tonight. Those who are mo the most vulnerable, go find them and find some food and eat it together. <laughs> that's the starting place. Um, this is a distinctly Christian practice throughout uh, history and the way that the gospel spread. And just what does this look like? Let me just give you a few stories, a few examples of what this looks like, and you can copy these stories and go do them yourself. There was a man I knew who decided he wanted to solve homelessness. Just a small issue, right? And then some wise man said, here, let me give you some better advice. Go play pool with someone who's homeless once a week for a long time. That guy does work on issues related to homelessness, but he also continues to play pool and understands the issues at a greater depth because of the relationship there. I have another friend who I asked him what his uh, opinions are with immigration, and he says, I have no right to have an opinion yet because I have not shared a meal with an undocumented worker. Um, another example would be uh, Mike and Brittany Carrillo, some good, uh, good friends of mine, who have opened their home to foster care, and they've fostered several children. And even this last week, one of the, the kids that they had adopted through the foster system had heart surgery, and they've welcomed their home. But they also have chosen to speak with honor and respect to, about the birth moms as well and love them as well. We have... Even another example would be from this very church. You know that we do a lot with refugees at this church, but what, what, where did that start? It started with a group of interns that we had a few years ago, and we wanted to walk with the various Somali refugees in the community and other refugees, and instead of saying, what program should we start, the interns boldly said, uh, we will go and we will live in their apartment complexes. We will share meals with them. We will feel awkward and out of our place, but we want to be at the table with them so that we can really understand things. And from that, all of the stuff that we do with redemption, with refugees, flowed in. Eventually, our pastor of community and global initiatives, Josh Prather, he was one of those interns. Now he's the guy leading that. And several of the other interns have continued to walk with the Somalis in our community. And there are many other stories. I actually have them listed out, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to get into them. And know that it's important to volunteer, to give money, to create policy, to create awareness. And I'm going to give you resources on the blog for all of that. But the starting point is the dinner table. And very quickly, why is that the starting point? One is because hospitality is humanizing. It puts you all at the same level as people who need to be nourished and are co-image bearers. Number two is that it cultivates long-term faithfulness. We have a, some sort of disease in, uh, in the world today where people will like only volunteer for things for like three months if it fits their schedule. But if you really know somebody, it cultivates long-term faithfulness. Hospitality also helps you understand the real needs of others, not just throwing money at something, not just rushing to conclusions, but to sit with someone and understand the real complexity of the situation. And number four, hospitality addresses our great need to know and to be known as relational creatures. And in that light, I think that gives us 
an understanding of the often quoted verses of Matthew 25, 34 through 40. You know what I'm talking about. Where Jesus says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you came to me and you took me in as a stranger. And they said, when did we do these things to you? And when Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these. What this is, is not a general call to do nice things for people. This is a specific call to make place at the table for the most vulnerable. And with that said, I want to leave you with, with a question. My question for you to discuss around the table is, who are you going to make space for at your table? Go ahead and discuss that, and the panel will come up in just a second. Okay, everyone, go ahead and draw your conversation to a close. So for the next, um, for the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to go ahead and have a discussion up here about some of what was said. Um, and in the process, I want to introduce you to the new people on our panel here. Um, so would you guys go ahead and introduce yourself and just say who you are and what you do? Start with you, Will. Sure. Uh, my name is Will Vakurvich. I work at a, a place called House of Refuge. It's a 24-month um, transitional housing program for families experiencing homelessness. My name is Ricardo Stewart, and I'm American Gladiator. <laughs> and pastor at Redemption. Hey, real quick, if, if Ricardo was an American Gladiator, what should his name be? Nitro. Nitro, okay. You, you, you. You will only be referred to Nitro from the, this point on tonight. All right, go ahead, Danae. My name is Danae Pierre, and I'm the director of Foster Care Initiatives. Great, thank you. Well, my first question tonight actually goes to Danae. Um, so we're, we're talking about uh, walking with the most vulnerable. So a question that I have for you is you, you work within systems, right? Um, are there any systems, do humans create systems that actually make people more vulnerable? What does that look like and what should we do about it? Yeah, so um, kind of the first part of that question, you know, we talk a lot about as we look at the foster care system or the criminal justice system or different institutions in our society that they were built by human people and humans are fallen. And so we um, have idols that we worship and we then build structures to support those idols. It doesn't mean that the structures are all bad. There's salt and light that seasons everything um, and there's some systems that are worse than others, but there's still structures built around idol worship and those begin to have the most effect on the most vulnerable. So you look at you know, Ephesus, Paul's writing a letter to the Ephesians and in that church, in their city, there, if you, there's a temple to um, I think it's Artemis. And so you look at, like, who was the most vulnerable in their society. They have children being prostituted as part of their worship to the goddess of fertility. Well, we have our own idols. We have our own things that we worship. And the most vulnerable will always pay the, the greatest consequences for that. A way that we illustrate that is, you know, when there is a lot of systemic um, injustice. So if you're in a family where you're being sexually abused and physically abused your entire life and um, you're in... The, and you're trapped in poverty, and then you kind of keep expanding it to a city level, to a, to a community level, to a country level, um, that those create sunburns. And so 
I may have grown up in a home where I have third-degree sunburns, and Ricardo may have grown up in a home where he doesn't have that, or I might have grown up with privileges and wealth um, where I don't have sunburns, and Ricardo didn't, and so he experiences these sunburns from the intense heat. And so when someone grabs my arm, if I have a sunburn, a uh, third-degree burn under my uh, T-shirt, and Ricardo's skin is healthy and someone grabs his arm, he might react normally and smile and say, hey, what's up? And I might scream and want to punch you in the face. Am I responsible for that reaction? Yes, but there's a lot more to this story. And so those are really important things to talk about. And I think we need to think a lot more when we talk about the heat that brings out the sin in our life. um, What are we doing as a community to intensify that heat? That's a really good, yeah. (laughs) Nitro approves of that answer. Uh, the, the next question is for you, Will. Um, so, Will, um, Will and I have been friends for a long time, and um, he always tells me that he doesn't like it how often this one verse is quoted, that the poor will always be with you. Why don't you like that, and how do you make sense of that? Didn't Jesus say that? Yes. So you're going to disagree yes, with Jesus? Jesus? This is a church, bro. Um, <laughs> Jesus definitely said that. And I've, I've heard a lot of people um, in, in different contexts use that verse. Um, tell you what I haven't heard. I haven't heard anyone use that verse to say, like, there's a lot of work to be done, and we should get motivated and acting. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> what, what I have heard is people use that verse to say, like, Ah, Jesus says there's always going to be poor people. Why try? That logic doesn't really work. Like, I brush my teeth every day knowing that I'm going to have to still brush my teeth the next day, right? I don't just give up because there's more of a problem out there. Um, the, other, the, the other piece of this that um, I haven't really heard explained a lot is that Jesus is actually quoting a passage in Deuteronomy. And, and God tells his people that there will be poor with them and in their midst. And so that communicates something that they shouldn't be ostracized, right? God also commands his people to care for those poor. So I think the um, intention that a lot of people ask the question in is not uh, what Jesus had in mind as he was referencing that passage in Deuteronomy. He's saying there's always gonna be poor and we are to care for them because God commands us to do that. That's great. Ricardo, um, tell us whose responsibility is it? Um, The there are many vulnerable people, um, homeless, disabilities, refugees, all these things. Is this the government's responsibility, the church's responsibility, individuals' responsibility, or the vulnerable themselves, the person in a vulnerable state? Is it their responsibility? Whose responsibility is it? The short answer mm-hmm. is everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that government has a responsibility. I, I, because I'm a Christian and I take the Bible to be true, I do believe that we're created in the image of God. And therefore, I think that having the Imago Dei, I mean, there's a lot of good things that, that people can do, whether they believe in God or not. And I think that there could be good and salt and light, as Danae said, within systems. And I do think the government has a responsibility, especially in our country, to be able to care for the vulnerable. Now, having said that, uh, the church, I think, has a greater responsibility because a deeper motivation Um, the the deeper motivation is understanding that he who was rich became poor so that we who are poor are now rich in Christ. 
And so the strength that we draw from to be able to reach out to the vulnerable and the least of these, et cetera, is not a strength that comes from within. We don't believe that. It's a strength that comes from outside, that the Lord, the Lord himself gives us his spirit. Um, and I absolutely, my, and th I'm not speaking as your pastor now, so I'm speaking just my. As nitro. As nitro. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Nitros. Can I, when I talk about yes, nitro, I can third talk about third yeah. person. Uh, it bothers me to know in, uh, as an even evangelical church, when I hear people saying that, why do we keep talking about social issues? Because isn't the primary role of the church to make disciples? And hear me, that is what the church should be doing is making disciples. But at the heart of making disciples is loving God and loving your neighbor. And if my neighbor does not happen to have something to drink, I am no longer loving my neighbor if I don't bring over water. Um, I, I'm not loving my neighbor if I'm not caring about the public school system, even if my kids are not in that public school system. Now, they are, but I need to care about that because I know that I have particular privileges to think about education in ways that they may not, and their children need the opportunity to level the playing field as best as possible in order for them to be able to, uh, to survive and to also to participate well within society. And so I think the church has a big responsibility for social issues from the water we drink um, and to the water that we give. Um, and I don't think that we think in a broad concept and um, um, looking theologically of if God so loved the world, um, so should we and everything that's in it. Um, the individual has a responsibility. So me and my wife have the responsibility to do what we can do um, and whatever that looks like. And I think the vulnerable have a responsibility as well. So on the flip side of that, I understand why the right um, can get upset because they, a lot of times it's personal responsibility, personal responsibility, and they see people who, who especially in the welfare system, where it seemingly they abuse it. Um, and, and so I can understand that, and I grew up around that, and I, I understand why there, there are people who do that. And so you do have to take responsibility. I don't, that, that's not to say that if you are disabled, it's your fault. That's not to say that if you are born into poverty, it's your fault. However, whatever resources and opportunities that you do have, you have to try like crazy to make the best out of those responsibilities. I still think the biggest, though, is on the church, and then I would say on government. I actually do believe that government can help out in more ways than I would say, and should help out in more ways than maybe most evangelicals that I rub shoulders with. Just to kind of maybe nuance a little bit of or push back a little bit on the individual, I think that the way that the right or uh, maybe we can talk about some of the frustrations over welfare, things like that, acts as though any of us on our own, which I know you're not saying this, are able to make it. And that's just not true. Every single one of us are able to have the privileges we have because of the community around us, our network, our relationships. You, If you were in crisis right now, you could think of 10 people that can help you. Um, and when we talk about the most vulnerable, some of the problems with, okay, if you throw 20 kids into a pool who can't swim and two make it, well, who is God going to hold accountable for the 20 kids being thrown in the pool? He's not going to say, well, good job, those two people who were just survi survival of the fittest and swam and learned how to swim, we're going to be held accountable for the 18 who our systems kept throwing into the into the deep end, and as the church, to be able to say there is sin and idol worship that keeps perpetuating that, can we stop it entirely? Well, that's the not yet um, part of where we live, but are we called to like faithfully engage and enter into that 
like tumultuous water and maybe die trying to save kids, you know? So I just think that there's just more, we just have to keep going back to no individual can thrive, let alone survive without community. Thank you both, Nitro and Danae. Um, we had a little technical difficulty with the questions before, but now it looks like they're up. Um, what are the practical steps to first identify and build a table that, I got glasses, come on, uh, <laughs> that you can then make room at? So practical steps. Um, John, do you have any practical steps? I, let's ask the professor if there's any practical steps. I think the biggest, oh, hello? This is, yes, biggest practical steps is to look around people in your circle of influence because there are like, there are, whether you admit it or not or, or see it or not, there are vulnerable people all around you, whether it be friends of friends, family member friends. I mean, if you look around, and so when you're starting to do practical steps, first look about those in your networks in your church, but also in your wider social networks of people who are vulnerable, and then find ways to engage them. And you know, it can be as simple. I remember in our church, we are where I go. We are an evangelical church, but we're in the midst of an urban environment, and so we have homeless and others who will just will come. In some cases, because there's food, and that's great. Um, but it's also an opportunity to, you know, engage them and not just, you know, if they're standing in the corner, uh, not to just go socialize with the people that you're used to. And I can remember one man, it was a little bit scary because our kids were really little and he was, um, you know, not the profile of most of the people in, in the church and there was something quite a little bit off and we engaged him, ended up taking him out to lunch and learning a lot more about him and he had a lot of things going on in his life, but I think really looking for the people around you, that's the first step. And on a practical level here at Redemption, the third Thursday of each month, we have something called the With Collective, where, where we cook our, our best meal, whatever your best food is, bring it and come share a meal with and listen to the stories of uh, the homeless people in the community who also get to, um, they, they stay on campus on, on Thursday nights. So that's a practical way. Next question. Um, all right. How do I invite people to my table while guarding the time and safety of my family? Will, go ahead and take that. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> So we did, we did this thing called Neighbor's Table on Saturday, um, and, and I led a section of that talking about um, the issue of homelessness and people experiencing homelessness. And one of the questions that seems to come up is, you know, homeless people are so unsafe. And the question that I asked is, who told you that? So there have been studies done, and, and the evidence would suggest that less than 2% of the arrests made um, of people who are experiencing homelessness or for violent crimes. The majority of the arrests are for like sleeping in a park or trying to find a public place to use the restroom but being denied and having to go somewhere. So I think a lot of times this is, this is a good question to ask but we have to ask where is it coming from? Uh, do we know that these people are unsafe or did we just see like scary homeless people on 80s action movies and assume now that homeless people are unsafe? 
And I think that this extends to whatever the, the vulnerable population is, if it's people with mental illness, if it, whatever it is, how, do we really know that they're unsafe or are we operating from an untrue or a biased perspective? Now, with that, we do take precautions. We, you know, you, you do respond in wisdom. And you, there was a, a young gal in the class who said, you know, I have a room, but I'm, I'm a single girl. I don't really feel comfortable inviting like five homeless guys to stay in my room, right? So, so there's some level of wisdom there, but I think that we also have to address like the scary other. And is that necessarily true? Or is that what our society has told us? And I think where it is true, those people still are human and deserve love and relationship, and love and relationships make people more safe over time. So yes, wisdom, but that question we have to kind of get to, like, what is the idol worship that driving that question? We all ask it. We're all consumed with this idea of safety. Um, it's not biblical anywhere. Um, if anything, we're called to give up our lives, our bodies, everything for the sake of the gospel. And so, yeah, we have to, like, integrate wisdom into that and we need to be healthy um, but um, I, I also think we err too, too much on the side of caution. So I'm going to push on the other side because I fully agree with them but as someone who's always had people living in our house this is not a I didn't come from a place of privilege at all and we've always had people in our house and we've always had people off the streets in our homes with all sorts of issues whether they're homeless or they're addicts or whatever has happened and the only part I would say, I agree with Danae, there's, there's not a point of looking for safety, but if you have young kids, your primary responsibility is to protect the heck out of those kids, but not out of fear. There's the difference where I think that they're saying, don't do anything out of fear. When we do things out of fear is when we seclude ourselves and you'll never be able to engage and you'll say, I'll wait till they get old enough and they never get old enough and you never engage. Uh, and so I do think that there's a way that um, you can both engage um, and be able to protect. And I think my, my mother did an incredible job at that. We were protected. Nothing ever happened to any of us. And yet we were completely exposed to the realities of where people were at. Um, and in terms of safety and stuff, I would say there was majority a lot of unsafe environments that at the time I didn't know were unsafe because someone had to finally tell me that those environments were, were, uh, were not safe. Um, you know, just, I wanna speak a little bit personally here. Um, a lot of what happens, you know, this is a place that hits home at my heart and something that's sort of disturbed me. My daughter's on the autism spectrum. And it's very interesting that every time there's a big shooting in the US, people find solace in the fact that that person may have had autistic traits. A lot of times they don't even confirm that. They just throw it out there to make us sleep better at night. And at the end of the day, you gotta care, you gotta take care of safety. Your children are among the vulnerable. But a lot of what we're doing when we're saying the stuff about safety is we're giving ourselves an excuse to get off the hook. And I would ask you not to get off the hook with someone like my daughter, and I'm just gonna leave it at that. Next question. Um, are humans biologically or inherently incapable of monogamy, but God's grace makes us capable? John, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we are all, are, 
all sinful. And so certainly we do have things that um, pull us in directions that we shouldn't be. However, I'd say that the actual research on this show that human beings are quite capable of monogamy and faithful marriages. In fact, depending on the cohorts you look at, the vast majority, depending on the birth year of, of marriages, are actually faithful. And the earlier statistics actually coming out of Kinsey and others from the 1940s and 50s, which were based on subpopulations that were not the general population, actually. Kinsey largely interviewed people who were convicted of sex crimes and were in prisons and then tried to extrapolate that. And so he came up with statistics like 70, 80% of married people were you know, engaging in adultery. Uh, the other research shows that, in fact, we are quite capable of being monogamous. And so that is the interesting thing when you have this push by some of the evolutionary psychologists saying that we're not made for monogamy. You sometimes wonder, is that out of their own personal struggles or you know, where they're getting that from? Because the actual social science research shows, it is, you know, depending on the culture, we actually can live. Uh, monogamously. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It certainly doesn't mean that we're not sinful because we are or that people are tempted, including Christians, and I think it's a real tragedy of, of how rampant, say, divorce is in American culture, and there are lots of victims in that. I mean, a lot of people who are in our own church, we have actually struggled with this. We have had elders and others who do not have biblical reasons for divorce, who have actually left for relationships with other people. And we've had to struggle with that. What can we do to you know, provide help for people proactively to equip that? Uh, but so the short of it is no, I, I don't think that's inevitable. And certainly with God's help, I think you can have uh, better. But even, frankly, even outside of the Christian faith, people can be monog monogamous. Sorry. Um, in the next few days, I mean, I, I really appreciate what he just said. Take note of that. But in, in the next few days, I'm going to post a paper on our Facebook page about common grace as well. Um, and the reality is we can only do it by God's grace, but God's grace is common in all good things that all humans are, are able to do. I'm going to throw a paper on that and not comment on that anymore. Um, if you have kids, um, they're vulnerable, um, so you've got to protect them. Uh, go pick them up from childcare. It's 8 o'clock, but we are going to continue. I think this is an important conversation. We're going to go a few minutes longer and take a few more questions. Feel free to take, bring your kids in here, um, but uh, if you need to get your children from childcare, go ahead and do that, and we're going to take a few more questions. So go ahead and throw one up there. Can some of you give us some good practices for being creative in our hospitality in the context where God has put us? Go for it. A quick practical thing would be if you live here in Tempe, there's several parks all over the place, and then we just happen to have a lot of people. I mean, for whatever reason, it's been tending towards transients, but I mean, there's there's quite amount of vulnerable people. But two things I can think of: um, you can invite people to a park where you and your friends put together a meal, and let them know what time that meal is going to be together, and you can sit and eat and do a with collective without having any structure. Just do it yourself. The other thing could be is I think that one population that we are grossly overlooking um, is the elderly in our, in our community. So one of the things that, that Jim and I are part of is this interfaith community of different um, religious leaders in our city, and we're constantly being asked by the city of Tempe to do certain things. But one of the things that they're asking for is how can we address the needs of the elderly that are aging out, so to say, 
um, in our communities. Uh, that Tempe in itself has many or many people, adults, that uh, that just really need our help. And so I think that looking in the city of Tempe or whatever city you live in and saying what can be done uh, to care for those um, that are that are elderly that cannot that need us to wrap around them as well as um, the the sex trafficking victim, um, the, dis the s disabled, et cetera, but I think the elderly are, are part of that. That's good. Danae, would you comment on that? Yeah, I think I'll add, one thing that I always wanna press us towards is not just to enter into relationships with the vulnerable for the purpose of fixing or solving, um, but to be in relationship with them, meaning that they become your friend and they disciple you as you disciple, th that relationships disciple us, that we are, um, you know, you, you think about like how did Christ grow in love as he sat and wept with Mary and Martha at the death of Lazarus, like that they taught him something as they grieved, he grew in love. And so we like are helping each other. Um, and I think it's really important that we look at what are we already gifted at? What are our, what are the natural gifts and strengths we have? What do we already love doing? And how do we spend our time with our friends now? Are you someone who, you know, has coffee with people to kind of talk through things? Well, like, who can you begin to have those types of relationships with and do the things you're naturally good at with those who are vulnerable? And then I would say a significant aspect is praying because, you know, people always say, well, what's the most important issue? Is it abortion? Is it homelessness? Is it public education? Like, which, like, give me an order. And it's like, these all matter to God. A lot of them really overlap. Um, you cannot care about the unborn and not care about the mother who's in crisis um, with. And so I think you pray and ask God to open your eyes to the needs around you, and he will be gracious and not open it all at once, and will continue to expand each year and through different things the amount of weight that you're able to see and paint around you, and then, and then use the gifts to equip you to love people where they're at and be loved by them, which is the most significant, um, I think, way for us to grow as believers. Maybe one of the most creative and countercultural things you can do is to be a humble learner as well. Um, just take, for instance, um, the, the many refugees in our city. Our city has one of the highest populations of, of refugees that we've welcomed here in the state, and they are doing some brilliant things. So don't come as a teacher, come as a learner. Learn how to go and make Uzbek pilov. Like, um, I can connect you too. If you want to come as a learner, I'll, t I'll, I'll connect you to someone who can teach you how to make some Uzbek food. Uh, learn a language that very few people in the world are learning. There are, there are, like for instance, Somali. It's the third most spoken language in, the Mar in Maricopa County, believe it or not. But people don't learn Somali because there's no economic advantage to learning Somali. But if you learned it fo solely for the sake of of befriending your neighbors, the neighbors that God has brought here. I think that that would be um, a creative way. Talk to me if you want to be connected to that, but just know it's going to take a lot of hours and a lot of work, and you're going to have to come humbly. So if that narrows down the, the pool a little bit, that's fine, but come find me. All right, let's do, let's do one or two more questions. That's it. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up tonight. Oh, that's, the that's the new question. I can't read. <laughs> Friends, what's going on? Can you give some examples of how the science is now starting to challenge Darwinism in evolutionary biology? Okay, this will be our last question. Go ahead and take that, John. 
I'd encourage people who are interested in that, there are lots of books available, and one really intriguing one was published a couple of years ago. It's called um, Darwin's Doubt, and it's by a colleague of mine, philosopher of science, Stephen Meyer, and he talks about some of the very cutting-edge challenges to modern uh, Darwinian theory from a variety of areas. And the interesting thing about that book is if you look at the people who are willing to endorse it, like Harvard geneticist uh, George Church or paleontologist uh, Mark McInneman, there are a number of people who aren't necessarily identified with the idea that there's intelligent design in nature, are not Christians, who are actually saying that the sorts of things discussed in that book are really, uh, should be considered. And so just to give one example uh, from the things discussed in the book, uh, another friend of mine is a guy named Doug Axe. He's a molecular biologist, a Caltech PhD, was a researcher uh, at Cambridge University and a couple of labs there for a number of years. He researches a particular protein and how it folds. And, uh, you know, if you want the details, you need to read what he's written and not get it from me, a lowly political scientist. But uh, one of the things is to figure out how can you get from sort of this, this blind, undirected process, how can you find the functional, the, the islands of function where that will actually make a protein fold? And in the particular area that he looked at, you can actually quantify this, that there is only one combination out of, I always have to do this on my fingers or else I'll get it wrong, one out of a trillion, 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 trillion combinations that will work at all. So it's not like you have 10,000 ways to get to the function of this protein fold in this particular uh, protein fold. You have one out of basically a trillion, 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 trillion combinations that will work. And to expect a, a blind process of basically trial and error, which sort of is what natural selection is, to be able to achieve that, no matter how many hundreds of millions of years you have, it just, it doesn't work. And that's for one protein fold. So, and then, uh, I said I'd give you just one example, one other quick one. Now, for the first time, we don't just have to rely on, on simulations. You know, bacteria is one area where you can actually have trillions and trillions and trillions of of, of cells, and so you can actually model in real time thousands upon thousands of generations how much selection and random mutation can actually do. Another of my friends is a biologist, recently retired at University of Wisconsin, Superior, and what he did was, was actually uh, in the lab uh, using bacteria, having again, trillions of cells over, over generations after generations, thousands of generations, you could actually see how much natural selection can and can't do. And what, one of the things, the takeaway points from his research is that if you needed two coordinated mutations or more to actually lock in or, or get a function, selection wouldn't go there. And which it makes it very hard to understand because to build the really dramatic new forms and functions in the history of life, you need way more than one or two coordinated mutations to build you know, new animal body plans and things. So those are just a couple of examples of some of the things that are out there that are dif different, actually, than 10 years ago. Uh, I mean, really cutting-edge stuff. So if you did not understand that, <laughs> sign up for our faith and science class. That starts next yes. week. That was a good opportunity to plug it. We have books in the back. Uh, we, have, we have Dr. West's book. We also have a book, Walking with the Poor by Bryant Myers. It's a good book. Um, buy it. If you can't afford it, just go up to the people back there and say, I don't have money. Give me a book. They'll give it to you. Um, and uh, take a look at the art uh, that's on the wall there. 
And that's what we have for tonight. Next month, we're talking about family and a no number of things like that for First Wednesday. Thank you for being here. Uh, Will, would you close us in prayer? God, we thank you for today. We thank you for um, time to gather together and, and reflect on um, the vulnerable among us. We thank you that um, you were not far from us, though we are all vulnerable. We thank you that while we are still sinners, you pursued us. You entered in with us. You dwelt in our midst, God, and we ask that you would um, guide us um, towards that, that you would give us opportunities um, to love the vulnerable around us and that you would give us wisdom and creativity and courage um, to pursue those opportunities that you provide. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. Help us to love each other more. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Good night, everyone.